Welcome everyone to our continuing study in the epistles. I'm so happy that you have joined us today. And we are in a study in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews, as I said last week, is just one of my all-time favorite books. I mean, it is so rich. It is so deep. It is all about Jesus. We said last week that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and non-Christians who are in this Jewish community hearing about Jesus Christ. And the whole point of the letter is that the writer, and as we said last week, we all know who the writer of Hebrews is, but the writer of Hebrews is writing to convince his audience, to convince these Jewish people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types and shadows. And that when you've come out of the types and shadows of the Old Testament and you've come to Jesus Christ, He is all that you need. For He is greater than any of the types and the shadows. He is greater. He is better. And Jesus came in to fulfill the Old Testament and to bring in a new covenant. And He's writing to these Hebrews Many of them, the majority of them, are believers who are suffering persecution, probably from their own people, because they have left the faith of their ancestors and have joined to Jesus Christ. And many are trying to be persuaded to go back into the Jewish religion. Then you have those who are Jewish people who are hearing about Jesus and trying to make up their mind. Well, the writer of Hebrews is writing to convince them as well that, hey, everything that you've been taught has been leading up to Jesus, and he is better, and he is the final sacrifice. So that's the, what the context of this letter to the Hebrews is about. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the first six chapters and give an overview of the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews. So you need to grab your Bible and so that we can read along. We see that the first three verses here, the first three to four verses, serve as our introduction to the book. And with a lot of introductions, you know, of the epistles that we have read, it's easy to skip over those. This is an introduction you do not want to skip over. This is an introduction that lays the foundation for everything else that the writer of Hebrews is going to expound upon. This, in the introduction of Hebrews, is the definitive statement of the book or the letter to the Hebrews. So let's read the first three verses of our introduction. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Now remember, now keep in the context, and I'm going to come back to this several times. You have to put your, yourself in the place of a first century Jewish person who has heard nothing about you know, uh, about the church and Jesus, that all you've grew up on is the Old Covenant, is the Old Testament. 
with the fathers and with the law and with the prophets. And you're hearing about Jesus. You may have accepted Jesus, but Jesus is brand new to you. And the writer is writing to solidify you and to convince others of who Jesus is. So let's get ourselves in the mindset of a first century Jewish person reading this, knowing that our whole life we have learned the Old Testament scriptures. So chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the past... Now, in the past means the Jewish religion. In the past means the Old Testament. In the past means going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the foundation of the Jewish faith. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, our Jewish ancestors, through the prophets through the words of the prophets of the Old Testament, speaking for God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, and we said last week we made mention that the term last days here, don't think of last days as, you know, the end times or the last days of human history. Uh, you know, at the, at the filming of this, we are at the beginning of May. Well, at the end of April, when you get to, you know, April 28th, 29th, and 30th, those were the last days of the month. We have the last days of winter before going into spring. So last days, you have to ask yourself the last days of what? And this whole book or this letter is dealing with transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. So the last days that the writer of Hebrews is speaking of is the last days of the old covenant. Before the temple would be destroyed, the Levitical priesthood would be no more, and that old covenant system and order would vanish away. So he says, in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us the Jewish people, by His Son. So before, in times past, God spoke to the Jews through the prophets. But now, in these last days of the Old Covenant and the bringing in of the New Covenant, He has spoken to us, God speaks to us through or by His Son. So that right there in and of itself is the foundation of all that he's going to say in the rest of the letter that he's writing. Then he goes on to talk about the Son and to give definition to the Son. He says, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Jesus is not just a prophet that God spoke through. Jesus is the heir of of all things. Then it says, and through whom also he made the universe. So there we see Jesus, not just the prophet, Jesus, the creator of the universe. Then he says in verse 3, the Son, not just the prophet, the Son of God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. We saw, John said in his gospel, we beheld his 
glory. In Jesus is the glory of the Father. But going beyond that, he says, and he is the exact representation of his being. He is the exact image of God's very being. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Then he says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God, the gospel writer says. Then it says, he goes on to say in verse 3, after he had provided purification for sins, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Not only did he purify us from our sins, he is now at the right hand of the Father, serving in the place of the King. The right hand of God, the messianic exalted King that the Old Testament prophets spoke about. So, wow. I feel like I just need to take a breath. I mean, think about all that the writer says just in three verses of the introduction. How God has now transitioned from speaking by the prophets in the Old Testament to speaking by His Son. His Son has the authority. He appointed the Son heir of all things. The Son made the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's very being. He is God. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. He provided purification for sins, and He fulfilled the messianic promises by sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What a way to begin your argument if you're trying to prove a point. What Away, what an opening statement that the writer of Hebrews makes here. So you see the Jewishness of what he's writing to these Hebrews, convincing them that Jesus is God's final word to humanity, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our Hebrew scriptures, that Jesus is the final sacrifice. And that if you want to see and know God, you must see and know Jesus Christ. And the ultimate point he's going to make is that outside of Jesus, there's nothing to go back to. What a powerful opening statement that he makes here in the introduction. Well, now we're transitioning to part one of the book of Hebrews, we said last week that the book of Hebrews is in three major parts. And we see the first six chapters dealing with, it's all about the Son, dealing with the superiority of Jesus. Chapters 7 through 10 speak about Jesus's work in the new covenant. And then chapters 11 through the end of the letter 
encourage the believers to continue in faithfulness. So this week, we're going to look at the first six chapters. Next week, we'll look at chapters 7 through 10, and then chapters 11 through the end of the letter. Well, let's go on to chapter 1. After the introduction, verse number 4 of Hebrews chapter 1 says this, So, because of everything that we had just talked about, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The word angel is messenger. Jesus wasn't just a messenger. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. So where the prophets spoke, the Son speaks with greater authority because He's the Creator and the Sustainer and all of this. When the angels are messengers, Jesus brings salvation. Messengers only herald what has happened. Jesus is the cause, the salvation of what has happened. So he spends verses 4 through the end of chapter 1 speaking on this dissertation of angels. So we see on our paper, the above claim about Christ is demonstrated by comparing the Son to the angels. And in this comparison, it is the Son who is superior. The writer begins with a series of Old Testament quotations that do two things simultaneously. It shows the Son's superiority to angels, and it supports the affirmations made about the Son in verses 1 through 3. So we're not going to read all of the verses from verses 4 through 14, but I do want to just point out kind of the structure of what's happening. If you look at verse number 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? So basically what he's going to do through the rest of chapter 1 is talk about what God says. Or through the scriptures, what the scriptures say. What the scriptures say about angels versus what the scriptures say about the Son. And it's to prove the point that the Son is greater than the angels. For example, verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God never said that to any of the angels. Or to which angels did God ever say, I will be his father and he will be my son. He didn't say that to any of the angels. So he goes back and forth about what he, did he ever say this about angels? Well, no, but he said it about his son. If you notice in verse number eight of chapter one, but about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So he quotes a messianic uh, scripture and applies it to Jesus. That here's what God 
has to say about the Son. And he quotes this messianic scripture of the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to give other examples. In verse number 13, he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So the rest of chapter 1 is a comparison between the angels and the Son, and the result of that comparison is the Son is greater. Then verse number 14, he says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So we see in the angels came to serve those who inherit salvation. But Christ is the one who gave the salvation to those who would receive it, to whom the angels would minister to, showing the superiority of the Son. As we go into chapter 2, we see an initial warning in the first four verses. He expounds upon Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, to argue about the significance of Jesus' incarnation, Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. And his point here is, is that in his humanity, being a human being, fully human, he was made a little lower than the angels. Through his birth, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a brief time. Now, when Jesus was born into the earth, when he was made a little lower than the angels, he did this for several reasons. He was made lower than the angels so that he could fully identify with us and with our humanity. He did this that through his sufferings and through his death, he would affect salvation. He would bring salvation for all of us through his sufferings. And he did this also to become a merciful high priest for us, making intercession, and therefore becoming better than the angels. So we see this in chapter 2. It starts out with the warning. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift Away, And you're going to see this, we mentioned it last week in our introduction, over and over again. He gives these warnings about drifting away from the truth. Why? Because there were people who had, you know, come to a knowledge of Jesus, but yet were being persuaded and tempted and persecuted and threatened to go back into Judaism, to drift away from Jesus, back to the Old Testament types and shadows, to drift away from the new covenant back into the old covenant, to drift away from the one final sacrifice back into the old sacrifices, to drift away from the true high priest Jesus back into the Old Testament priesthoods, the old covenant priesthood. So he's going to give a lot of warnings about drifting away and and falling away and, and turning away because he's trying to solidify That Jesus is superior to everything in the Old Covenant. And everything in the Old Covenant and Old Testament was leading up to Jesus. And then he talks about that the message that came uh, through in the Old Testament, you know, those that uh, disobeyed the law received punishment. 
But if you received punishment for disobeying the law, he says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? How, 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 do, you, how do you think we're going to escape if, if we ignore the salvation of Jesus? Because again, there's nothing to go back to. Salvation is only found now in Jesus Christ. And he talks about this salvation in verse number three was announced by the Lord, confirmed to us by those who heard him, and God testified to it. And, and you can read in the book of Acts through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts. So God did all that through the preaching of the gospel and the apostles in Israel to let the Jewish people know this is the real thing. He says in verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. And then he quotes another Old Testament scripture. If you notice down in verse number 9, he says, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. So he's not lower than the angels anymore. And it specifically says in verse number 9 that he was made a little lower, that he would taste death for everyone. That he would taste death for everyone. And through this would bring many sons and daughters to glory. And he would be the pioneer of our salvation. Perfect through what he suffered through the cross. In verse 11, he says, But the one who makes people holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or sisters. Implying you might have been children of Abraham through your birth. But through Jesus, you are children of the Most High God. And true children of Abraham. He goes on in verse number 14 uh, to talk about how Jesus shared in our humanity so that he would break the power of death and the fear of death over people. And then he says in verse number 16, it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. He came first to the Jews, to the Jewish people. For this reason, he was made like them, made human in every way, so that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse number 17. That he would make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered. So he's able to help those who are being tempted. So now we see Jesus was made lower than the angels, that he would suffer and die and bring salvation. He would bring salvation so that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory to make them of one family. And he specifically mentions in here that he came to save Abraham's descendants. So to the Jewish ear, you're hearing, he came for us. He came for us. Jesus better than the angels. As we go into chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus is greater than Moses. We're going to see the supremacy of the Son over and against Moses. So on our paper it says, next you come to the author's contrast with Moses. Moses was great, 
But God's true servant, Jesus, is incomparably greater. The mention of Christ's superiority to Moses leads to exhortation and warning that those who are Christ must not follow in the unbelief exemplified by those in the Old Testament who belonged to Moses. So now he's now the writer of Hebrews, establishing Jesus is better than the angels, establishing Jesus came to Abraham's descendants, made lower than the angels to suffer and bring salvation to Abraham's descendants, is saying to Abraham's descendants, hearing about Jesus, don't be like your ancestors. For your ancestors who Moses led out of Egypt, for Jesus is seen as the new Moses with a new exodus leading people out of spiritual Egypt. He's saying, don't be like your ancestors who Moses led out of Egypt. What happened to those who Moses led out of Egypt? They got into the wilderness and they lost their belief and their trust in God. And they murmured and complained against Moses. They hardened their hearts and they wanted to turn around and go back to Egypt. And because of their unbelief, God allowed the people of Israel to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years so that the whole generation that came out of Egypt, who's hardened their hearts and came to unbelief and murmured against God and wanted to go back, they wandered until they all perished in the wilderness, never receiving the promise of rest in the promised land. A tragic situation that happened. What should have been an 11 day or so journey from Egypt into the promised land ended up being 40 years that a whole generation would fall short of the promise because they didn't believe God. Now God has sent a new Moses leading a new exodus. And the people of Moses now have a choice to make. Are they going to believe God's word, Jesus, and receive him and follow him? Or are they going to harden their hearts and desire to go back, not to a physical Egypt, but back into a spiritual Egypt under the bondage of the law? And the old covenant, which no longer leads to salvation. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to speak of here in chapters 3 and 4. So chapter 3, verse 1 begins, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. He was faithful to those who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found, verse 3, worthy of greater honor than Moses. And he says this because he says the builder of the house has greater honor than the house. So he says Moses was a servant in the house. A faithful servant, a good servant. 
But he was a servant in the house. But Jesus is the builder of the house. Therefore, Jesus receives more honor. We go on to read in verse number 7. He again quotes another Old Testament scripture. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, today if you're hearing the voice of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Hebrews, quoting their own scriptures in the Hebrew scripture. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of the testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They, do, they have not known my ways, so I declare an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. That's what the scripture said about the generation that came out of Egypt that died in the wilderness. They hardened God. Their, they hardened their hearts against God's voice. They rebelled in the wilderness. They turned their hearts away. So therefore God declared they would never enter into my rest. And rest here equals them entering into the land of promise. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land where there would be cities and houses they did not build, vineyards they did not plant. That God would give them this promised land of rest. So he quotes this Old Testament scripture about that generation that died in the wilderness. And he says in verse number 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, now that you are you know, the, the children of God coming out of a new exodus led by a new Moses, see to it that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So I, I want you to notice something. In the book of Hebrews, sin is mostly equated not with, you know, the different sins that we can name. In the book of Hebrews, sin, which you see many times as a singular word, sin equals unbelief. Sin equals unbelief. So he says, don't let there be in any of you a sinful and unbelieving heart that makes you to turn from the living God. Not that they would hate God, but that they would reject Jesus. And turning away from Jesus means turning away from God. It's not that the Jew could turn away from Jesus back to the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is done with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. The God of the Old Testament now speaks and works through His Son, Jesus. So it's not that you can turn from Jesus and go back to God. To turn from Jesus is to turn from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, don't let any of you or see to it that you don't have this unbelieving heart in you. He says in verse 13, but encourage one another so that you would not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And you're going to see a lot of that as well because he doesn't want them turning away from the truth in Jesus back to the Old Testament. So in verse 15, he says, and has just been said, he reiterates, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He says in verse 16, who were they who heard and rebelled? They were all those that Moses led out of Egypt. They rebelled because they didn't believe God and heed his voice. And it says that God was angry with them and they perished in the wilderness, verse number 17. And God swore that they would never enter into rest. He says, if not to those who disobeyed, to those who disobeyed, he said, you would never enter into my rest. So we, verse 19, we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief, by not believing. They disobeyed by not believing. So he gives that Old Testament group of people that came out of Egypt as the example. Don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts. Today, listen to his voice, and his voice is speaking Jesus. Jesus is God's final word. As we enter into chapter 4, we're still talking about rest. But we all know that Moses did not lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Moses perished in the wilderness as well. Then rose up Joshua. And Joshua was the one who led the people out of the wilderness into the promised land. So now we're going to see in this chapter, the greater than Joshua. Chapter 4. He says, therefore, since the promise of entering into his rest still stands. The promise of entering into rest did not end in the Old Testament. That rest was only a picture of the true rest that was to come. So the writer's saying the promise of entering into rest still stands. He said, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. How do you fall short of rest? By rejecting Jesus. By going back into the old covenant types and shadows. He says, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But they in the wilderness, it was of no value to them because they did not mix the word they heard with faith. And then he goes on down in verse number 6 of chapter 4. He says, there still remains a rest. There still remains a rest. Others did not go in because of their disobedience, their unbelief. But even though they fell short, God renewed his promise of rest. Because as we just said, that rest was only a picture of the true rest. But even in the scriptures, God renewed the promise of rest. So in verse 7, he says, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David and said in the passage quoted, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
So he says, David repeated this promise that is still in effect. Verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, if the ultimate fulfillment of rest was found in Joshua leading the Old Testament people into a physical promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. But he says emphatically, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest. Let's make every effort to enter into that rest. So everything in the Old Testament is a picture of what was to come in the New Testament. So even the promises made to Israel about rest, about entering into the promised land, it wasn't about physical rest in a physical piece of real estate. It was about spiritual rest, not in a promised land, but in a promised life inside a believing heart made a new creation in Christ Jesus. So he says, let's enter into that rest. And then in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, let us hold firmly. There's that There's the exhortation again. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was made like we were. He says, we have one who's been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. He says, therefore, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Going back to the passage he talked about, Jesus being a high priest who was made human and suffered but brought salvation to people. By bringing salvation, he ascended into heaven and therefore intercedes for us. So he knows our weaknesses and empathizes with our infirmities and weaknesses. He was tempted but yet did not sin. Therefore, we can come to the throne of grace. And I often love to say that today Jesus is not sitting on a judgment seat ready to throw lightning bolts down. If that is your image of Jesus today, an angry God sitting on a throne ready to judge people and throw lightning bolts down and zap people and give them sickness and disease and send hurricanes and and tornadoes and, and send pandemics, you don't understand the words that's saying here. You haven't come from the old covenant into the new, from the judgment seat to a mercy seat. Jesus is sitting on a throne of grace today, offering forgiveness and salvation to whosoever will. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Then as we move further into chapter 5, we see the argument here continue to talk about Jesus being this high priest. And he's going to now contrast those or contrast Jesus with those who were priests under the old covenant. He says, every high priest, verse chapter 5, verse 1, 
Every high priest is selected from among the people and appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts for sins. And the earthly high priests are able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. He's basically saying earthly priests can relate to people because they are sinful just like people. He says that's why these human priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. He says, and no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it. No one just becomes this kind of priest. He receives this priesthood. That's how the Old Testament priests were called by God through his covenant, through, through Levi and the Levitical priesthood. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory. Jesus didn't come down to get the glory for himself, but he receives it when he was called by God. Christ did not take on the glory himself. He became a high priest when God said to him, you are my son. So in the same way the earthly priesthood received their priesthood, when, it was, when they were called by God through Aaron, Christ received his priesthood when he was called the son by the father. And in verse number six, it says, and he says in another place, you about Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a very interesting, mysterious and confusing word. If you asked a hundred people who Melchizedek is, 99 probably couldn't tell you who he was. And the hundredth one might be wrong. Because it's not something that we talk about. We don't talk about Melchizedek every, in everyday conversation. We don't really preach on Sundays about Melchizedek. People aren't in their lives wondering, well, who's Melchizedek? But Melchizedek is very important. Because what you're going to find in the book of Hebrews, there's two priesthoods. There's the old covenant priesthood. With human priests, a human high priest, offering human sacrifices that were limited and temporal. Then you're going to find another priesthood, a heavenly priesthood of the new covenant that offered one sacrifice and is eternal. The Old Testament priesthood is called the Levitical priesthood after the tribe of Levi, Levites. That's the priesthood of the Old Testament. And Hebrews is very clear, and this is very important, that the priesthood changed from the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedek priesthood. Did you know under the old covenant, Jesus couldn't be a high priest? He could not. He was born in the wrong tribe. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. So under the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, Jesus could not be a high priest. But God has declared Jesus high priest. How? God changed the priesthood. He brought an end to the Levitical priesthood. And he created a new priesthood. After the order, not of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk more about him and go into the Old Testament next week. But God created a brand new priesthood. And said Jesus is a priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek, who has an eternal priesthood, a better priesthood. So he speaks of this priesthood of Jesus. And then we see in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse number 12. Let me, we just saw chapter 5, I forgot to move my slides forward. We saw in chapter 5 a greater priest, a greater high priest. And then we find in chapter, it's actually chapter 5, verse 11, going down through chapter 6. Now he's establishing Jesus. Now he's moving back to the group of people that he's speaking to, this group of Hebrews who the letter is being written to. And he speaks of the need for maturity. He gives a warning and speaks encouragement. So in verse 11, he says, we have much to say about this. It's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. So again, we've, and it's going to be very important here. We're not going to get bogged down into this, but again, to define the audience. As best we know, the audience is Jewish Christians who've received Jesus, people in the church who are part of the community that may not be fully persuaded about Jesus. And then you probably have just non-believers that are being preached to from Judaism. So you have two to three different types of groups of people that these words apply to. If you remember Jesus' parable, uh, the first parable about the kingdom, about the sower that's sowing seed, some seeds fell on stony ground. Some seeds fell on thorny ground. Some seeds fell by the wayside and were taken away by the birds. Some seed fell into good ground. And Jesus was speaking about those in Israel who would hear the message of the kingdom and how they would respond. There would be some that would, receive the, that would not receive the word at all, like seeds on stony ground. There would be some that seeds would be sown like on, on thorny ground, that they would hear the word like the word, but it never changed them. And it felt good as long as everything was good. But when the cares of the world came and tribulation came, they fell away from that word. Then there was some that the enemy would try to come in and steal the word away from people. Then there would be those that would fully receive the word of God and the message about the kingdom. So he says here, We've much to say to you, but some of you no longer try to understand. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but need, but you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Some of you have heard this and heard this and heard this, but you haven't really grasped it. You need someone to teach it to you again and again and again. And we have to keep going over this. How, many times, how much do I have to tell you about Jesus before you grasp it? He said, you've heard this enough. You should be teachers. You should be on the meat of the word, but you still need milk and someone to teach you these truths over and over again. He says, some of you are still like an infant, just receiving milk when you should be receiving solid food. You should be mature now. He said, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil, truth from not truth. Chapter 6, he goes on, he says, Let us therefore move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, again, let's think with our Jewish mind. Elementary teachings has to do with 
the law. When they started teaching about Jesus, they didn't have a New Testament to teach out of. So they taught Christ through the Old Testament. They taught Christ out of the Old Testament. So he says, there comes a time we need to move beyond, not forget, but move beyond as a foundation. The elementary principles, the elementary teachings about Christ. Leaving beyond, moving forward from the elementary teachings or the oracles of God in the Old Testament about Christ. So that's what he speaks of here in chapter 6. He says, and be taken forward into maturity. The word mature there is the word perfect or complete. The Greek word is, the root is teleos, which means the intended end, the intended completion. Christ is the intended completion of the law. Some of them were still staying back in the law, were tempted to go back into the law. And he says, we need to leave the elementary principles, the oracles of God in the Old Testament. We need to leave those and move on to completeness, to their intended end, which is Christ, to fully receive Christ in our lives. Not laying again the foundation. Not laying again the foundation. Let us be carried on to salvation. Laying again the foundation is those Old Testament types and shadows. Let's not stay in the shadows. Let's come out of the shadows into the light. And he gives several of these. He says the foundations of repentance from acts that lead to death. Or one, or King James says, from dead works. Dead works is the Old Testament law that could never produce Life can never produce life. Then he goes on to talk about and of faith toward God. Jews had faith toward God, but not faith toward Jesus. Instruction about cleansing rites, purification. That's the Old Testament purification was a picture of the New Testament. One purification of Jesus Christ. He's saying we need to leave the teachings about the Old Testament rituals of purification and receive Christ's purification. He says about the laying on of hands. Now, if we read this with a Christian mind, in a church mind, we think the laying on of hands might be laying on hands on people at the altar and praying for them. To a Jewish mind, the laying on of hands would would be speaking of the Day of Atonement when the high priest would lay his hands upon the sacrifices to make atonement on the Day of Atonement and transfer the sins of the people onto the animal sacrifice. He's saying we need to move, that was the Old Testament foundation, but we need to move beyond it and come to its completion, which is Jesus Christ. And then the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We need to get beyond those things into the life that Jesus offers now and the escape from judgment that he offers. And he says, and God permitting, we will do so. And then in verse 4, he gives a scripture which is a pretty controversial scripture depending on how you look at it. It says this, for it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, 
and of the powers of the age to come, who have fallen away. We've talked about what falling away means, going back into the old covenant. Who have fallen away. It's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now again, there's varying opinions on what this means. You know, is this speaking about a a person, a Christian who is saved, that they can lose their salvation? You know, certainly a lot of people, even within our own denomination, would, would agree with that. You know, that if a Christian falls away from faith, they can lose their salvation. But if that happens, then you have to say that if they lose their salvation, there's no way they could ever bring it back. There's no way they could ever get it back. It's impossible. Then there are some that believe that this scripture is talking to those who were not quite fully convinced about Jesus in the Jewish community. You know, that they still were going back to the foundational principles of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. They weren't moving on into maturity to full salvation in Christ. They had heard about Him. They, they had been enlightened to the truth. They had been preached the truth. You know, they tasted the heavenly gift. They're, 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 they're sharing in the things of God. They're in being influenced by the Christian community. But yet, if they were to go back to trusting in those Old Testament types and shadows. As long as they're trusting in those Old Testament types and shadows, there's no way to bring them to repentance. There's no way to bring them to repentance. It's impossible to renew them to repentance as long as they've fallen back. And notice the, uh, the saying, they are crucifying. That's a present tense word. As long as they, are, as long as they have fallen back to the elementary principles... And have turned away from Christ. And like those who they received the word. But it might have been on thorny ground. And it was. And they turned away from it. And didn't fully receive it. Or it was those who fell by the wayside. It wasn't those who received the word on good ground. And he's saying. As long as they fall away from the truth. And go back to the elementary principles. As long as they're there. It's impossible to bring them to repentance, because there is no salvation in repentance, in those dead works, in those Old Testament sacrifices, in that Levitical priesthood. There is no salvation in them anymore. So as long as they are there, there's nothing to go back to, is what he is saying. He says about them, they are land that drinks in the rain, and it produces a crop. To those whom formed it, they receive a blessing. But then there's land that produces thorns and thistles. Going back to Jesus' parable. And the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. And, it will, and its end is to be burned. That's basically a little parable. Very similar to what Jesus said about those who would receive the word. Some of them have received the word. They're hearing the word. But it's not taking root. They're not going on to maturity. They're not leaving those Old Testament things. And if they fall back into that stuff, they continue to crucify the Son of God afresh. And there's no bringing them back in anything under the law. So there's a warning that the writer is giving to all of those in the, in the community there. 
But then I love how he says this, because if you notice, with almost every warning, or with several of the warnings that the writer gives, he also gives a word of affirmation. So in verse 9, here's the affirmation. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. So we're saying we are trusting and believing and are convinced that you will not be those who will fall back into the old elemental principles of the law and forsake salvation. He says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work, the love you've shown, the help that you have given people. He says in verse 11, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. Through faith and endurance inherited the promise. Don't go back. Don't let the trials and persecution steal the word. Don't let the enemy come and steal it away from you. And then in verses 13 through 20, he gives the the certainty of God's promise. The certainty of God's promise that when there was no greater for God to swear by, he swore by himself to his promise to Abraham that I will bless you and give you many descendants. And after waiting patiently, Abraham received the promise. So there's the Old Testament example to the truth that he has given. Verse 18, by two unchangeable things, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope, our hope in Jesus, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So he gives the word of encouragement to them. We're believing better things of you that you won't turn back, that you will hold fast to the end. For God is certainly faithful in his promises. His promises are sure. He swore by himself that Abraham would have many descendants. Not physical descendants. Spiritual. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And God confirmed it with an oath and he cannot lie. And when our hope is in Jesus, you are firm, safe, and secure. For Jesus entered into the inner sanctuary behind the veil, the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat is. He entered on our behalf. Nothing we did, but why he did. And he became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's that mysterious name again. So I know this was a lot to take in. I encourage you to take the notes, download them off the website, and I'll read over those. Read and reread the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews this week, looking for these things that we've talked about today. Go back and, and re-watch uh, the video again. Maybe you'll catch some stuff. That's the wonderful thing about video. If you didn't catch it the first time, you can go back as many times as you want to uh, and listen again. So uh, that's it for this week. We're going to jump into chapter 7 next week and talk about this mysterious priesthood and how Jesus brings in a better priesthood with better sacrifices under a better 
covenant. God bless you.